Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Gallery of South Australia. Welcome to Ghana country, Agsagana Yatanga Yuandi. My name's Lisa Slade. I'm the Assistant Director here at the Gallery. And we are very excited to be doing a whole lot of things this evening, including holding a feast event. And tonight, you're going to have a fantastic time. I'm going to be downstairs with a host of educators, a host of teachers as part of our Educator Connect event. So I'm going to miss out, Troy. But you are in for a treat because tonight, as part of FEAST, we are so excited to be part of the program. And I'd like to say a special thanks and congratulations to CEO and General Manager of FEAST, Helen Sheldon. You are going to be entranced, enchanted, and positively entertained by Troy Anthony Bayliss. Troy probably needs very little introduction for many of you, but if you had not had a chance to see his work as part of the Guildhouse Fellowship, please make sure you do before you leave tonight. Troy's astounding exhibition, Nomenclatures, is in the gallery's vestibule. So the entrance that you come through, if you come through North Terrace, and Troy's work we launched as part of Sala, but also was the outcome of a brand new fellowship which is supported by the James and Diana Ramsey Foundation. Quite an incredible fellowship because it's all about artists doing what they do, supporting artists just to get on with it, to crack on and do what they do. And Troy was the inaugural recipient of that particular fellowship. Tonight, you will be delighted by Troy against the backdrop of an exhibition which is all about colour. It seemed like the perfect match. Please join me in thanking and welcoming Troy Anthony Bayliss. Thank you so much, Lisa, and thank you so much for being here. First, of course, I acknowledge you meet on Ghana country, on the lands of the Ghana people. So please welcome to the Art Gallery of South Australia, Gallery Nine Walls, Chromatopia. When I think of Chromatopia, I think rainbows, lots of colours, lots of tonality. To paraphrase a very great Radiohead album from 2007, I see in rainbows. So in a musical nod, I'm calling this talkie Chromatopia and the Chromatones. So curated by Lisa Slade within a COVID-19 time context, the exhibition draws on works from the, from the collection of the gallery, including works that have never been on display in the gallery to more recent acquisitions. It is subtitled An Exploration of How and Why Artists Use Colour. I hope you don't mind. I'm sharing rather my associative mind to create lines that branch out that web of connectedness created by Lisa's uh, curatorship into queer terrain. Um, obviously, Lisa is very encouraging of that. Her curatorship and even the way in which works at various times and cultural perspectives displayed throughout the galleries is, is always, you know, with these things that are put in opposition to each other, always kind of encourages and ex, you know, new and expanded conversations for, for discourse. So, rainbows and the rainbow flag. So, metaphorically speaking, Rainbows are formed when water droplets reflect, refract, or disperse light. So light on glass, including wet glass, can create a, a rainbow effect. But culturally, representations of rainbows and uses of multiple and various colours are deemed celebratory. So I'm thinking kids' parties, carnivals, sporting events, and, and art. Also disco. So, you know, today's Kylie Minogue's new album called Disco um, has been released. So sort of as a 
in celebration to that and, and a, a, a costume that she actually wears in her. It's very similar to, to this, this fine blue vintage number I'm wearing here. It's sort of a bit, a bit of a nod to that and a bit of a disco. And for many Kylie fans around the, the world in this state of COVID-19, she says, suggests it's a moment of escapism to celebrate on a fantasy dance floor. So I guess this is my fantasy dance floor tonight is the Chromatopia exhibition and all the other dancers in the club. So it's great to be here with you. So the rainbow flag, also known as the gay pride flag, um, or the LGBT pride flag, represents the celebration of people's uniqueness and their sexuality and gender diversity. So it's the full spectrum. And the rainbow flag as a queer symbol also imbues the struggle, of course. And I'm loving how now they're flags that represent all different queer identity labels. So the, the, the lesbian pride flag has variations of magenta and purple hues. The bear pride flag incorporates the seven different colours of bear fur, which I, I must say, I hadn't kind of really thought about those before, but this, this opportunity, especially when I'm thinking about the chromatones of things, um, yeah, I kind of got to discover these things along the way. And uh, the transgender one, has five, five stripes, so it's, it's baby, blue, uh, baby boy blue at the top and bottom, and then next we've got the baby girl pink next to the baby boy blue, and then in the centre we've got one white stripe for those who are tra transitioning or consider themselves neutral or undefined in gender, so I really love that flag as well. And obviously these, you know, particular chromat chromatonal compositions are not reflective or, or likeable representations for everybody. But, but you know, for me, I'm, I, I love colour, I love pattern, so I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. I'm just going to start with these works here by Tracy Moffat. Tracy, the um, Aboriginal artist, she was born in Brisbane in 1960, and they're from 2008, and the series is called First Jobs. And they're basically 12 worksite scenes where the then adolescent artist, uh, was employed in a job between 1975 and 1984. So each site has an image representing the artist working away. So you can see, you know, here's the artist as a hairdresser, and oh no, she, I can't know which one she is, but any, and she's kind of in, she, she's painting houses, various, um, but I love that one at the pineapple factory is quite fab as well. I went to the, to the um, pineapple factory as a, at school, it was an excursion, and it was a, 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 I think we had to pay $3, I think, we could actually eat samples of things and guts ourselves on pineapples and pineapple juice. Yeah, but the, the colours, colouring of the photographs has a chromatonality uh, to it that reminds me of the cinematic film colouring process called Technicolor. And this link of Moffat's practice as a photographer into, into cinema kind of moves across all of her work. So including the, the, the still images that have been described as cinematic, she often does these kind of plays that have this sort of movie-like quality to them, um, as well as her, as her you know, raw video works. So I'm also thinking of the, the 1939 film version of The Wizard of Oz, which is considered one of the greatest, most successful, most culturally enduring films that employed Technicolor. And The Wizard of Oz, of course, is of course a significant queer cultural artefact, in part for its link to the Stonewall riots, to the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which incidentally was actually cut from the original director's cut and then was had to be put back in. And that song, of course, was sung by the hugely iconic and, and gay icon, Judy Garland. Just as kind of another thought, I, I know that sometimes people might think, well, th there's a lot of women who we consider gay icons, and so, so gay icons for, for, for men in particular, 
you know, so you think, you know, the, the Minogues and, you know, et cetera, lots of film stars, musicians. And, yeah, and I guess there's lots of, a variety of reasons for that, but one of the things that kind of occurred to me, of course, especially in these kind of earlier days where, where gays were kind of living very quite precarious, sort of hidden times, they were still the main creatives behind these people. These gay people wrote these really festive films that we know and love from the you know, 40s and 50s and 60s. And, you know, they did the makeup, the styling, the looks. And it's similar to when you get to Kylie and Danny and, you know, people, more, more modern um, gay icons too. So, so, yeah, I think that's, that's an aspect of their iconography that I, I don't really think about very often. But, yeah, I think that's an, it's an important thing. And this kind of, yeah, I'm just thinking Judy Garland and waxing from that. And recently I went down a, a YouTube hole watching docos and stories of, of gay London in the 1940s and 50s. And I was thinking about this, and it sort of discussed the social venues and the, the culture of describing gay men in particular as musical or as, as colourful. And I'm not suggesting by any means that, that for same-sex attracted men, life was without violence or intimidation or exclusion, forced heteronormativity and other kinds of homophobic um, oppression. But it appears that it wasn't until the Cold War era of spies and deception that same-sex attracted um, men were targeted through mass media and demonised throughout society in a really huge way. I think the great thing that parallels with that Technicolor, going back to that, is that it's exactly the time that Technicolor ended. So you had this Technicolor environment that was this, this full fantasy, if you like, of colour and song and, you know, colourfulness. And then you had gay men in particular being demonised as being, you know, as, as pedophiles and as being, you know, dangerous for society and for families and for children and all of this horrific stuff, which, of course, crossed the antipodes and into, into the, you know, across the, a lot of the world. And it was really at that time that that happened. And it just so happens it was the end of Technicolor. So I see the end of Technicolor as being this kind of, this cross-cultural cut-off point to this horrendous change that kind of has a, a kind of occurred in terms of, of, of violence and oppression towards, towards gay men in particular. And no, I haven't mentioned um, women yet because, of course, uh, you know, in earlier times, it was like women didn't even have sexuality at all. But we'll, I'm going to get to that with another work. One other thing that this, these images remind me of as well is the drag balls. So the drag balls kind of, they're in America, but also in the UK. We have some here in Sydney, in fact, in Australia. There might be in some other regions too. That's actually where we got those terms like, um, like work and slayed the runway and, and shade and fantasy realness and all those kind of terms that we, we use a lot now in the queer community, particularly kind of re-spiked, re I suppose, by, by, by drag race, which has become this massive international phenomena. But yeah, that those, those terms kind of come from that, that time and the, that place. Significantly with this work is it reminds me having Tracy as a woman of colour in each of these scenes. Part of the, the wonderful thing about the drag balls is it enabled people of colour and people of you know, all different body types to, to live out this fantasy in these balls. Because in real life, if you're a woman of colour, you wouldn't be doing corporate realness. So you could actually dress up in this fantasy and be these things for these occasions. And of course, you know, Tracy's not really in these sort of corporate realness jobs, but still it reminded me very much of that and, a, and an excuse to talk about, you know, history of language and kind of how it's transcended through generations and twisted and changed and what have you. This painting on this side of the blue wall is by Dame Laura Knight. 
and it, it's called Harvest, and it was painted in, in 1939. And really, it's the depiction of light that is absolutely the star of the work. And I think that the way that she painted light is, is truly extraordinary. It does remind me a bit of those, those films we see kind of... I don't know if people are at home in the middle of the day and you have these, you know, heavenly sort of films. But I, 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 don't know if she's, I don't know if she was religious or not, but in any case, that depiction has this magicalness of the light, and I, I just think it's stunning. Incidentally, the two figures in the forefront of the painting are the artist's friends, and they are Aldris and Josephine Nicholl. And they were academics, historians, and a particular focus was on the life's work of William Shakespeare. So this is another tiny little nod to queer stuff too, is, is drag is believed to have come from the word drag and how we use it in terms of um, gender at least, because drag of course has multiple meanings, but, but the idea of the gender was, was in, in the notes it said, you know, dressed as a girl. So there's a little segue into making drag of this painting. <laughs> um, and also, to paraphrase the Gorilla Girls, which you might know, that American collective of feminist artists, and there's, there's this work that says, you know, do women have to be naked to get into the Met? And it appeared that women at least needed to be a dame to get into the Royal Academy, <laughs> because Dame Laura Knight was the first woman appointed to the Royal Academy after, I can't remember the figure, about 147 years or something, and was the very first full member of the Royal Academy. And there was two, two members before that that weren't considered full members, and they weren't able to, ironically, they weren't allowed to be in the life painting and life drawing classes where you've got with nude women. So somehow, I don't know why that would be, but I'm only sort of assuming this kind of weird reasoning about this sort of sexualized body and if why other women can't see a sexualized body I just just it's weird so yeah so that's why my comment to women have to be naked to get uh, into the Royal Academy and that um yeah and she was already um a dame for three years just before she, she she got into the academy and of course that kind of ceiling glass ceiling breakers are really important and I, I, I know in a sense we're talking about sort of in between sort of the later of the first wave of feminism so, you know, of course, the artist was, was white and she came from privilege, but you still need those glass ceiling breakers. And its relationship to queer, of course, is because queer extends from the ideas of feminism. And, and probably more so the second wave feminism, where it's about different coloured bodies, different eth ethnographies and different um, uh, socioeconomic circumstances. Uh, one more thing <laughs> is that the artist and the two figures in the in the forefront are, are part of a, um, a a group, which I now can't find their name. But they also had some relation with the Bloomsbury Group at the same time. And the Bloomsbury Group were, were based in London. It was men and women, and it was sort of the, the late teens into the twenties. And their relationships with they're all young creatives, poets, writers musicians, artists, and they, they're kind of known for their mixture of sexualities and sort of all this sort of community of, you know, I don't think it's quite, you know, all free love, but who, who you know, there's stories about, about that. So that's, um, again, I think a super important part of our kind of history and a great link to this, this work. Okay, so I'm not going to do all, all pictures. There's probably four to go, and then we can have a bit of a discussion if you'd like. So, um, so Dale Frank is the, the sort of golden 
picture there. This huge synthetic polymer paint and varnish on canvas work was created in 1999 by Dale Frank, and it's called Pale Than Pale Custard Cream Moonlight Off-White Old Ivory Irish Linen Cream Neutral Beeswax Corn Silk Foulmouth Hawaiian Sunset Paloma Burnus, in brackets, pansy, exclamation mark. So, you know, I'm into wordplay in a big way, in case you haven't, haven't noticed. But I have to say the title of the work is a bit of a tongue twister for me. It's such an outpour, and it's difficult to swallow the read in one go. But all of Frank's work, I really love the boldness, and, yeah, and I suppose it's just the way they kind of take up this greedy amount of space. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. You can be lost in this. So there's a sheen to the work, and I don't think the effect is from water droplets. Um, I think it's, a, you know, it's the golden colouring lit by the lighting, and it's the gelatinous, bodily-looking settlements on a surface appear like some sort of good time has been had. I'm thinking Liberace's version of the 1930s Slim and Slam song, Cement Mixer Putty Putty. Incidentally, Bully Slim Gillard in particular was into wordplay in a big way too. And across multiple languages, I might add, I'd kind of discovered him in this journey from the 30s, just incredible work, an incredible musician that just incorporated jazz and rock and roll and all of these things that weren't even considered genres back then. I just thought, what an innovator, and I, I can't believe... And it was sort of through this kind of Vaudian kind of black comedy, so it's sort of not quite the minstrels, it's something else, and it's from the position of the creative, of, from you know, the person as a creative maker. And I just, his work's so fascinating, and I, I can't believe he's not recognised more so than what, what he is. I mean, it, you know, he should be, in, yeah, more recognised. So I'm also thinking Andy Warhol's piss paintings. I'm thinking semen paintings. I'm thinking Jackson Pollock and abstract expressionism. And then back to Warhol, I'm thinking of one of Andy Warhol's first soup can pictures from 1962 that, weren't as, that wasn't as reduced so much in the graphic design as, as, as his soup cans became. And it was the one that had painterly drips to possibly plug into that dripster movement of the abstract expressionisms, of abstract expressionism, because at that time he was just trying to find his way into the art world. I think he, I'm not quite convinced whether that was a trick and a play for his dealer or not, just to have some fun with, but in any case, it's got these drips on it. It just goes with that bodiliness of Dale Frank's work. I think. And then if you're going back to the, uh, the naked female body, the scale of the work is also triggering flashbacks of that 1964 uh, video performance work called Meat Joy by Carolee Schliemann. And the work stars bodies seemingly rolling around in ecstasy across this canvas. And, and it's just this fantastic film work. I'm sure you can probably even see it on the web if you haven't already. I saw it at the IMA maybe 15 years ago. I think it's just brilliant, brilliant work. Virginia Cuppage. The, the work by Virginia Cuppage is that big, sort of almost like a colour field painting at the end of that wall. It's a slightly Rothko-looking, but, but not. So it was painted in... It's called Second Transformation. Um, and I, I won't go into the obvious ideas about transformation. It's a 1974 work. So, so this work's kind of, in a sense, been rediscovered. It's an early work uh, by a Australian artist can be linked to this important movement that's mostly associated with American art, and she lived in New York. Apparently, there's this, you know, to be seen as, at that time, I suppose, an Australian working 
in a sort of a, an overseas centre, certainly at that time, and we've still got aspects of that now, like, you know, that we're some hick place that doesn't have, you know, so, so but in any case, she, she wrote about by f feeling like an alien sometimes in that place. And I know we hear, um, certainly from the 1970s as well, like Ian Byrne, who's an um, a Australian artist and um, an academic, and he wrote about the idea of the, that sort of tyranny of distance. Then also, you know, the hierarchy of landscape painting and this, this sort of, this, these ideas that kind of were literally, I suppose, dragged from the UK into Australia to be the default setting for how we value Australian art and how we, how we hierarchy certain Australian art and even how we, certainly in those earlier days, kind of mimic from Britain. And by, by we, I mean none of us here, but, you know, generations ago. So, yeah, I was, I was also thinking about Quentin Crisp, who um, was a Lon Londoner who is the... There's a famous work play film you might have seen by him, but, uh, about him. Quentin Crisp moved to... He was treated very, very badly in London and moved to New York. And when he moved to New York, he, he just sort of, I suppose, in this resilient act, said, well, you know, if you want to get me, come and get me. So he had his phone number was in the phone book, his address was in the phone book. I have a friend who just knocked on his door to visit him. And he just answers the door. So he just moved to another big city and just thought, I'm not going to be oppressed by all of this stuff anymore. And I must say, I kind of took inspiration by that. By that, I kind of have my stuff open. Thank you, Quentin. But yeah, there's also a song by the police, written, an Englishman in New York. I'm an alien, an Englishman in New York, that was written about, about that transition to, to New York by Quentin Crisp. Okay, so this um, sort of mostly pink work here in the sort of the center one and the, in the other side of the gallery is by Gareth Sansom. And Gareth Sansom, you know, he, his work was kind of in the, in the uh, 70s. I, I, I didn't write down the year of that work, but I, I'd, I'd say it's 70s. Yeah, it's, obviously there's some references to uh, Brett Whiteley, Francis Bacon, the gay, gay artist Francis Bacon, but also Gareth dressed in drag from time to time and incorporated digital photographs of himself wearing latex horror masks, bizarre latex, uh, female masks, latex prosthetics and, and faux rubber vaginas. Yeah, he, he had a, um, a retrospective a few years ago at the National Gallery of Victoria and it was called Transformer which obviously makes me think of, you know, the Lou Reed album, Transformer. I'm sure it would have been named after that, with Lou Reed on, on the front looking how he does, and then on the back he's, he's in drag. And, and then I think of all of that scene around Andy Warhol, because, of course, Lou Reed comes to Velvet Underground and Nico, and that, again, that, that influence that happens across these sort of international jurisdictions. So you have, you know, this, you have this sort of proto-punk um, which is of you know MC5 and Iggy Pop and the Stooges, and um, a bit later you have the the the, the more gender fluid uh, and androgynous looks like David Bowie, etc. We all kind of worked and were inspired by each other, and and then of course in the New York kind of punk scene started with Jane County, and the New York Dolls on the other side of town as well. So, this, so all this sort of queerness interplays and then you know, there's a play that they wrote called Femme Fatale that Holly Woodlawn I think wrote and that was debuted in London with Patti Smith and Candy Darling and you know so you've just got this 
all of these kind of influences, and I think that these kind of paintings and this work from the, these periods kind of capture all of that, that, that at, least, at least for me anyway. But I think that there's, um, yeah, there's, it's all of those kind of queer intersections that, uh, that intersections, there's a wordplay there, um, that are kind of, that transcend onto that, that picture, and I really love it. And I think from an Australian genderqueer perspective, it also would be important to, I think you put, it, put that amongst um, maybe Barry Humphreys' early Dada work, certainly Lee Bowery and, um, and Wanda Villa, are the, the other Australian kind of queer names that I'd associate with the work of, of, of that artist. Yes, and I think just one more, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll stop there. So, so this knitted work, this marvellous knitted work, is by Annabelle Collett, and she was born in 1955 in South Australia, and unfortunately she, she, was, she died last year. And she was a South Australian designer and artist, and she worked across art, design, craft, and her fashion designs, and particularly her, her um, dramatic knitwear produced under the Yaya Oblique Clothing Company, a fused art, fashion, culture, material. And these works, I guess they have this sort of orifice look to them, and I, I don't think I need to be any more descriptive than that. Those of you who, who, who might be knitters in the room might know that they're not actually kind of cast off either. So I think even by having them at play in a way kind of could, could suggest that there's a movement to them, and maybe even the suspension of having some of these has a movement to them as well. But, you know, obviously they're totally tonal, both in the, in the plastic needles um, knitting needles and, and the, um, the, the, the knitting itself. Just one thing. Oh, the work is called um, UN Knitted Forms, and I think there's... I try to do a count. I think there's 128 of them. Also, I think, particularly on this wall, it also looks a little bit like the Louis Vuitton design, you know, with the... I think there's the L's and the V's, and then there's these star icons that, that Louis Vuitton had as well. So... Yeah, I, I think that this particular intervention on the, the midnight grey kind of gives it that, that effect as well. I guess I just want to finish on saying this, this idea about knitting and this kind of gendered idea of knitting, which I think is super twisted and queer. Given that, that women and men have knitted throughout history, and I'm making the assumption that this is include men who happen to be heterosexual too, it is a relatively recent that knitting has become gendered and constructed, of, constructed as women's practice. So I think, you know, therefore the idea that men who knit transgress heteronormativity is entirely premised on recent cultural con constructs that women are default practitioners and, men, and that men who knit are not heterosexuals. I mean, these are just, you know, these are quite... I guess it's post-war sort of ideas of... of, of of women knitting, because of course, you know, people have knitted for ages, and, and, um, and I think that, that legacy of that is, is so strong, and obviously there's a lot more uh, work and expression and thought to come out of that, but I just think as, as, a, as a solid statement, it, it's not enough, it's that there's, there's more to it than that, these histories are much more complex, they're much more queer, they cross gender at different times, all the time. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to add that to Bob's worth in, was kind of writing about the idea whether, you know, uh, whether knitting was, a, was a, a queer act, and I sort of got to the very end of it and decided, well, there's nothing really queer about it at all. In the, if I look at it through that 
through that lens. So I think you know, possibly a better question than what's so queer about knitting might be, since when did knitting become subjugated into the subjugated world of women? I kind of think that's all I've kind of got to say, and I'm getting a dry horrors just... Well, thank you. Yeah.